Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Episode 30 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Phoenix Lights UFO incident. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, Let's get right into it, folks. This week, uh, we're marking the 22nd anniversary of one of the biggest UFO sightings ever. Um, On the evening of March 13th, 1997, There were strange lights that appeared over Phoenix, Arizona, that were seen by thousands of people. And 911 call centers were overwhelmed with calls ringing off the hook. Uh, There was photos, videos. um, And Jimmy, over in San Diego, you were aware of the Phoenix lights. And that's what we'll be talking about today on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, how did you become aware of the Phoenix lights phenomenon? Well, um, so at the time, I was listening to Coast to Coast AM, which was the show that Art Bell founded, Mm -hmm. and um, it deals with a lot of the same topics that we deal with here on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. But it's a nightly show, and it's, it's multiple hours long. It's like four hours long. And it was broadcasting when the Phoenix Lights phenomenon was happening, and um and so you had uh, callers on the show, you know, you had people contacting the show saying there's a major UFO thing going on over Phoenix. And over in San Diego, I happen to be listening. And I uh, Phoenix is a really cool place. I mm-hmm. love personally, I love Arizona. I, I love the geology. I love the beauty of the state. And I love taking road trips through it. So I've been to uh, Phoenix and other areas we're going to mention like Tucson and Flagstaff and places like that multiple times. There are just I, I, I don't mean for this to be a kind of tourist uh, <laughs> plug, but there are awesome things to see in Arizona. If you go to like the Painted Desert, it's like being on another planet. It's just amazing. And you've got Meteor Crater and the Grand Canyon and the mm-hmm. Petrified Forest and all kinds of wonderful stuff. We would ex- certainly accept uh, offers from the uh, Arizona, Arizona Tourism, Tourism Board. Board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, so the, the, you became aware of the Phoenix Lights phenomenon uh, while listening to the to Art Bell's Coast, Coast to Coast show. But, so what happened next? Well, it lasted that night. And then there was, uh, you know, a question of, well, what was that? And so there was um, a press conference that the Arizona governor at the time, Fife Symington, gave. And this press conference went down in infamy. It became (laughs) infamous because what happened was Fife Symington came out and said, we have determined who was responsible for the for the Phoenix Lights. And we're going to bring him out now. And a staffer wearing an alien costume came out, oh. with like a big bulbous head and a silver spacesuit. And he take and greets the governor, and then he takes off the head, and and it just people felt mocked, right? And um, and so then after that, there was a kind of explanation game where people would try to find out, okay, so what really happened. But and there were various proposals, which we'll get into, but it was a real embarrassment. The good news is Fife Symington has subsequently 
he's no longer governor, but he's subsequently eaten crow on this. And as we'll see, he he admits he saw the thing himself and he doesn't know what it was. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> OK, uh, so as politicians do the thing that they think is the political thing to do, and it turns out not to be the political thing to do. Yeah, but we'll get it. Like I said, we'll get into it. So uh, there are claims and counterclaims. We'll get into what actually happened in a bit. But let's start with the, the claims and counterclaims of what what people were seeing in the sky. Yeah. So anytime you have a. Um, an unexplained aerial thing, UF, the ET hypothesis immediately comes up. And right. so that's the big claim. This is this is ETs, extraterrestrials manifesting themselves over Phoenix. And it'll turn out other parts of Arizona as well. The counterclaims, well, there are a number that we could uh, discuss. One of the big ones is accidental misidentification of some more conventional phenomenon. One of the first proposals that was made was these were Chinese lanterns. Chinese lanterns are like paper lanterns that have actual fire in them that then can float because of the heat generated by the fire. Hot air balloon. And yeah. Like a hot air balloon. Yep. And um, and so that was one proposal. Another proposal was that the lights were military flares seen over the nearby Barry M. Goldwater Air Force Range, which is southwest of Phoenix. Right. Um, Barry M. Goldwater, you may remember, was a, a former senator from Arizona and mm-hmm. a presidential candidate back in the 60s. Right. Um, another proposal was that the lights were helicopters or they might have been airplanes or maybe it was a blimp. Okay. Um, then if it wasn't just something conventional that had been misidentified, maybe it was a little more exotic. Maybe it was some kind of secret military thing okay. that they were testing because you've got military bases right around there. Mm-hmm. And this is also Arizona is one of the four corner states. And that means it's next to Nevada and you've got Area 51. And mm-hmm. even if things when things are flying from Area 51, like that was where they developed the U-2 spy plane. Well, those things go forth, you know, Mach 4, and right. they have flight paths of thousands of miles. So they get seen over relative nearby states. So it could be something military being tested, another proposed explanation. And finally, it was a prank hmm. is one of the claims that there were uh, it, from the nearby Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Some of the students or pilots there decided to turn off their transponders and lights and buzz the city in weird ways as a prank. So that's one of the claims. Okay. So so what happened? What do we know about this event? Well, it apparently covered a large swath of the state, and it seemed to move from north to south. It seemed to start around Paulden, Arizona, which is up near Flagstaff in northern Arizona, and then it moved south, crossing over Phoenix, and ended around Tucson, which is down near the Mexican border in southeastern Arizona. So pretty much the whole state. A good chunk of it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not necessarily the extreme north, but a lot of it, yeah. Um, It took place, as we said, on March 13th, uh, 1997, between 5.30 p.m., and about 2 a.m. So it was very long lasting. It wasn't just a few minutes. This happened over a period of hours. A lot of people yeah. saw it. Um, yeah, you were going to say, Dom? I was actually just thinking it was 5.30 p.m. March 13th. That's Is that dark eight, eight, there? Eight, it, it, at that time of year, I'm not sure. It's also complicated by the fact they don't have daylight savings time in Arizona. 
Because as one friend from Arizona told me, if there's anything we don't want in summertime, it's more daylight. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but that's about an eight, eight and a half hour stretch. Okay. Is the duration of the phenomenon in okay. some form. That means a uh, lot of people saw it then. Yes. Uh, at least 10,000 people saw it. There were hundreds of calls to the authorities. And one of the reasons there were so many people is because um, the Hale-Bopp comet was swinging through the inner solar system at the time. And so lots of people were out sky watching to try to see Hale-Bopp. And so that's one of the reasons that they saw these. They were out to see these lights. Um, in terms of what people saw, well, the lights were orange in color. And they saw varying numbers of lights in different formations. Some of them saw three really slow moving lights. Some of them saw like six lights in a row or in, in like a, a just a row going across or five lights in a kind of or in a V formation. Right. And others said between three and nine lights in a V formation, kind of like, you know, if you see a flock of geese. Sure. Um, the some of them said they saw two trailing lights that docked and undocked with the V formation. So that could be one of the explanations for why some people saw more. And some people saw less if you have a couple of the lights that are docking and undocking. Um, the size of the thing was described as being huge, multiple football fields large, uh, maybe a mile or more. One gentleman in a documentary that we'll have a link to in the show notes uh, said he did a, a test where he like spread his arms out in front of him to measure it. And he had his hands like 30 inches apart. And you project that up onto the sky. That's huge. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in terms of more detail about how the individual lights looked, they were reported as being uniformly equidistant. So it's not like they you see a flock of geese and you'll see the geese at changing positions relative to each other. Mm -hmm. And these were not. They said people said these were like locked on a structure. So they were always equally distant from each other. They were said to be perfectly round and really big with no flaring and no glare and not right. like a landing light on an airplane. Uh, some said they looked recessed into a structure that they could see. Like you look in a movie theater, you look up at the light, you can see it's recessed in a little hole in the ceiling. And they said it was kind of like that. They looked re like recessed lighting. Hmm. Um, some people said they saw the V-shaped craft that the lights were mounted on. So they could see between the lights, there was this V-shape. Okay. Um, in, they said this was all silent. This did not make any noise. You didn't hear helic. You didn't hear like propellers or jets or anything like that. It's just totally silent. And it moved really slowly, very, very slowly. People said it, they could see it like drift over them. And it was then be too slow for a conventional aircraft to maintain altitude because right. planes have to go a certain speed in order to stay in the air. Right. Um, I was in fact, I was coming in once on a landing into New York and I had a, <laughs> it was very rough and I had a commercial pilot in the chair behind me and he was kind of narrating as we were coming down <laughs> in the snowstorm and he's saying, OK, the pilot is building up speed. He's got to get up to 150 miles an hour to avoid the cross shearing winds. He should be aborting this landing. He's not building up speed fast enough. <laughs> and when we landed, the flight crew 
applauded. <laughs> so, <laughs> the last thing you need on a fight like that is the guy who knows what's going on behind you yeah, narrating it. Narrating, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so conventional aircraft have to have a certain amount of speed to stay in the air, and by all reports, this was way too slow mm. for that. Um, in terms of its height, it was low down. Um, one of the things about Phoenix that I really like is it has these mountains that are in the city itself. Mm -hmm. Um, they're like big rock outcropping formations that just jut up. And one of them is known as South Mountain. And the lights were seen to go in front of South Mountain. So they were less high in the air than the peak of South Mountain. Um, another, uh, report says that they went under a plane that was cruising at 3000 feet, which is very low. That would have been like on approach for Sky Harbor airport. Oh yeah. And, uh, cause normally planes, commercial planes cruise at like 30,000 feet. Right. And South um, Mountain is, is, uh, according to Wikipedia, 2,690 feet tall. Right. So yeah. that's, so that's, low. yeah, yeah, very low. Um, did these things leave radar images? No, they didn't. But the uh, the air traffic controllers at Sky Harbor saw them. So you 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 had, you know, professional eyewitnesses who are used to looking at aerial, you know, planes coming in and they saw them. But there was there were no radar traces. Mm. Um, and all of that information makes it really hard to explain what these things were by any single explanation because it just it doesn't fit as we'll see the different proposed explanations but there's going to be a twist okay because there may have been two separate incidents mm. that night and it may be that one incident has one cause and another incident has another cause wow interesting so what are these two events what makes them th uh, think that there have been two there were two distinct events well, the reports uh, of the of what people were seeing shifted over the course of the night at Phoenix. Now, we mentioned it covered more of the state, but in terms of what people in Phoenix saw around 8 p.m., they were seeing you got the reports of the V-shaped formation. Mm -hmm. So you got the lights flying in the V-shape. And then um, around 10 p.m., there was another uh, about there was another set of reports about lights hovering over the city, but they weren't in formation in the same way. Hmm. And so there's kind of an early 8 p.m. event and a later 10 p.m. event in Phoenix. Interesting. And so that's going to be key to this is did these two different events have different uh, explanations and were they in some way related to each other? And was it only just these two events the, the on that one night that people have seen these lights? No, they've reappeared periodically. There was another sighting, so uh, like almost a year later, January 14th, 1998. And by that point, there were people who um, were looking for them because hmm. the Phoenix Lights had been a local famous thing. And so the Sky Watchers were looking for reoccurrences of anything similar. And um, there was uh, a Phoenix Light Spotters Club that, you know, was watching for these things. And then uh, on January 14th, they saw stationary lights that hovered for like 20 minutes. Um, they got a telescope on them. They, you know, were in the sky in a fixed position through the telescope. So they weren't moving, but they did go on and off. 
Um, and there have been other more recent occurrences too, including in the, just the last few years, but they, they, there hasn't been anything as dramatic as what happened in 97. Okay. And so then what, what kind of investigation took place afterwards to, to explain what's going on? Well, initially there wasn't much of an official investigation. Um, and you know, you had, there's a documentary, which we'll link, um, where you have like a 911 operator saying, you know, our boss is just totally shut up about this. And, and we were asking questions and it's like, oh, there wasn't any event the other night. And it's like, yeah, there was, I was taking the calls. <laughs> um, eventually a councilwoman in Phoenix named Frances Barwood got the investigation started and she met with opposition on the council. Other people did not want any kind of big deal made of this. They thought it would be too woo woo and, you know, was kind of embarrassing, but she pushed and she ended up um, writing to John McCain, who at the time was Senator of Arizona, uh, one of the two senators. And he got involved. He did a little bit of uh, writing to other like agencies, the military and so forth. And we'll, we'll talk about him more later, but also Fife Symington as a result of this uh, kind of uh, came out and said, uh, you know, I saw this too, and it needs to be taken seriously. Um, he ate crow for having mocked it at the press conference. Uh, but he said, and this is a quote, I'm a pilot and I know just about every machine that flies. It was bigger than anything that I've ever seen. It remains a great mystery. Other people saw it, responsible people. I don't know why people would ridicule it. Um, well, he should so, ask himself. <laughs> he should, yeah, maybe have a little conversation with the mirror. Um, the and On another occasion, he said, this is another quote, it was enormous and inexplicable. Who knows where it came from? A lot of people saw it and I saw it too. It was dramatic. And it couldn't have been flares because it was too symmetrical. It had a geometric outline and a constant shape. Right. So the flares thing, and maybe explain, we can explain that to folks. Uh, military aircraft, um, in order to, uh, they have counter missile systems, and some missiles lock on through infrared. They they look for heat sources, and so for decades, uh, military aircraft have used flares that they eject to mm -hmm. to de as decoys for those missiles. And so those made out of magnesium, exactly. And then and those flares usually float down. I think some might have uh, parachutes on them, even. But yeah. they shoot them out in a series, not just one at a time. And that's what they're kind of the, the, some of the explanations are is, that, oh, it's just a series of these flares floating down through the sky from a military aircraft that ejected them for some reason. Right. But and that's what uh, Symington is responding to there. Yeah. He's saying that these this is too geometrically symmetrically structured for that. Right. If there were different flares floating, they'd be at different speeds and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so interesting. So um so that's that's the, the the facts of what happened. Um, let's look at the the twi our twin perspectives of faith and reason. Is there a is there a faith perspective on this apart from just the general UFO question? Not so much. I mean, obviously, there would be faith related questions if it turned out that ETs were responsible for this, because that would mean ETs exist. Yeah. Um, but the faith would absorb that with no problem. And so it's there's not a, not much significance here. OK, so let's get into the, the reason. It's, it's not it's not like yeah. the Phoenix Lights, you know, aliens 
appeared over Phoenix and spelled out Jesus saved or something <laughs> right. like that. Or, or that the Bishop of Phoenix saw it and made a pronouncement. <laughs> so yeah. so let's talk about then the uh, the reason perspective um, and, and go back to some of these claims. Uh, what about the E.T. hypothesis? So this is where our Sherlock Holmes principle comes into play. Um, whatever, after you've eliminated what the the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable must be the truth. Um, since on this occasion, ETs didn't say, hi, we're ETs. Um, the only real way to eat, to, to provide support for the ET hypothesis would be looking at all the non ET hypotheses and judging them improbable. Okay. So, so that's really, we can't uh, assign a probability to the ET hypothesis unless we are able to eliminate, um, a large number or all of the conventional explanations. Okay. So that let's start with uh, the accidental misidentification of a conventional phenomenon uh, like the, the Chinese lanterns, for instance. Yeah. So that was the first one that I encountered in the news after this happened. I, I remember seeing an interview with a guy saying, oh, yeah, I set up these Chinese lanterns and, you know, let them up into the sky. And that must have been what it was. Well, not. <laughs> um, Chinese lanterns are small. Right. They And there's no way a guy releasing a few Chinese lanterns is going to cause this a citywide phenomenon. Because once they get too high up in the air, I mean, the wind gets fierce and they're going to they're going to blow out and right. they're going to be too small to see from the ground and they're not going to be flying in formation and they're not going to cover the whole state and they're not going to last for eight and a half hours. Right. OK. So so if you even though I remember the Chinese lantern explanation and I've heard other people refer to it. Um, like if you look on Wikipedia's page, I don't even think there's a mention of it. Okay. Um, as a possible explanation, it's so improbable. Okay, so we can eliminate that one off the bat. So, what about these military flares explanation? Well, so witnesses dispute this. Um, they're on the on the negative side. I mean, we heard Five Symington say it couldn't be flares because it was too symmetrical. It, the yep. formation just didn't match. We have other witnesses who said that, well, one of the things about flares is they flare, right. you know, they flare up and down. They're not constant intensity. And they said they didn't see these lights flaring in that way. Uh, also, flares leave smoke trails in the sky. They did not see that. Also, flares um, are, be, are, are attached to parachutes to keep them in the air because mm -hmm. if they immediately just fell out of the sky, they wouldn't be a good distraction. Right. Um, so uh, so they are attached to parachutes. But what happens is they illuminate their parachute so you can see the parachute above right. the flare. Um, fla these lights also were not observed by, according to many eyewitnesses, to be moving down even slowly. Um, they didn't drift with respect to each other the way flares would. Uh, they stayed for too long in the sky, like people would see them for 20 minutes at a stretch. And they occurred over too broad a range um, over for it to just be flares at the Barry Goldwater base. Right. Um, you would have seen them maybe from Phoenix looking in towards the southwest, but you wouldn't have seen them fly in front of South Mountain. Right. Or you wouldn't have seen them in other parts of the state that aren't within eyeshot of Barry Goldwater. Um, there are also objections like, why would anybody drop flares over a city? That's incredibly dangerous because these things were over the city. I mean, right. they, they were seen to go under a plane. They went in front of South Mountain. 
Um, it's in, it would be incredibly dangerous to drop flares over a city. They hit the ground. The magnesium in the flares starts fires. And this would have been a major serious FAA violation. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a, another objection. Well, they've been dropping flares at Barry Goldwater for years. Why would this night be different? Right. Well, just a possibility. Everyone's out looking for Hale Bob. Okay. So that might be a contributing factor to why, if there were flares at Barry Goldwater Base that night, that might be why some people saw them because they were looking at for Hale Bob and they saw the flares. Okay. But that wouldn't explain everything about them. In particular, it wouldn't explain why witnesses saw the craft that connected the lights and said it went right over them. Um, So you have certainly chunks of this phenomenon that cannot be explained by flares. But John, uh, John McCain contacted the Air Force after Francis Barwood's inquiry, and the Air Force said, guess what? We did drop flares that night. Okay. So maybe that's part of what people were seeing was flares. It won't explain everything, but maybe it was part of it. Some people have even proposed maybe they dropped flares at 10 p.m. as a way of muddying the waters regarding what happened at 8 p.m. So maybe the flares were there as a kind of disinformation. So they could say, you know, something weird happens. Let's send up a plane, drop some flares, and then we can blame it all on that. Because, of course... If they drop flares over Phoenix, it still doesn't explain the lights over Flagstaff and Tucson at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and it doesn't explain seeing stuff. They would not have dropped flares on the city. Right. Um. And if they did, I mean, those things leave remains. Yes. You know, so they would be found afterwards. Um. But uh, but there's some argument that maybe the the Air Force did launch flares. As a smokescreen, so to speak, so which true. is their purpose, after all, to distract <laughs> um, so, yeah. from whatever else was going on. OK, so that's kind of the flare issue. OK, so then what, another one of the uh, possibilities was that it was helicopters. They they fly slow and uh, yep. low altitude. Yep. And but they make a lot of noise. Right. And that was what the witnesses did not report. Helicopters low enough to the ground to, you know. And flying in very precise formations, they would have made noise and there would be flight records because you can't just get up and start flying your helicopter around willy nilly. You know, there are air traffic control issues and they do show up on radar. As we know from uh, the Osama bin Laden um, event, when they when the SEALs uh, killed him, Mm -hmm. there are military special forces helicopters that are virtually silent, that are radar absorbing. but that. In night, I do, I'm fairly certain we didn't have those in 1997, and I'm fairly certain we wouldn't see them flying in formation, a large formation with a light on them. Yeah, uh, over Phoenix. O- over a fe- over Phoenix, because that's a way of saying, "Hey, look at what we've got! Isn't this cool?" <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Also, also, even the helicopters we do have from the Osama bin Laden raid, um, they made noise and right. they could be heard. There was a guy in Abbottabad who was awake and tweeting. The raid, not knowing what it was, he yeah. was hearing this helicopter and he was tweeting and sa- on Twitter and saying, go away, helicopter. I'm going to get my giant fly swatter and swat you out of the air. <laughs> right. They're and, quiet, not silent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. OK. 
So, uh, so that's the hell. So that would be the the the, the an answer to the helicopter uh, uh, claim. What mm-hmm. about just regular airplanes? Well, there was a guy named Mitch Stanley who was an amateur astronomer in Phoenix, and he happened to be out that night using a forty-three power telescope. Um, and he and when the Phoenix lights appeared, he sighted them, and he told his mom, "Oh, it's just planes." So he thought it was planes flying in formation, and he even said that at a community meeting afterwards. And everybody else who saw them shouted him down. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of uncertain here. He didn't take pictures through his telescope that would allow us to examine the evidence for ourselves. It was his impression that they were airplanes, but a lot of people had a contrary impression. Also, with anything flying that low, because we're talking, you know, we're talking less than 3,000 feet. Right. That's and, pretty low. That's very low. I hear here in San Diego, um, Balboa Park is a scene where a lot of dancing goes on. A lot of dance clubs have facilities there. So I'm down in Balboa Park all the time as doing stuff in the dance community as planes are coming in to San Diego Airport. And they're real low at that point. And Mm -hmm. they they're like less than 3000 feet. You can totally hear them. And it is thunderous. Yes. Um, Yes. So if they were that low, they should have made sound. Also, they were going too slow. Uh, People said they like floated right over them. And this would have been a major air traffic hazard because they're flying through landing zones. Um, and And the flight controllers do not have a record of these planes are going to be coming through at this time. They have not been given clearance for this airspace. This would have been a major violation of FAA regulations. I mean, people could go to jail for extended periods for this kind of thing. Okay. Yes. You can, you cannot fly near an airport like that, even before uh, 9-11 at that altitude without being, uh, you know, under air traffic control. Right. Yeah. Okay. So then um, what about a blimp? Uh, Well, a, a blimp would be silent and it would drift slowly. So it fits that part of the data. Um, no conventional blimp is shaped like a V, though. Right, right. Um, and if it was a military craft, you know, I mean, who would have a blimp like this? I mean, maybe eccentric billionaire Bond villain. <laughs> but um, but if you think about it, I mean, no commercial entity like Goodyear has a blimp like this or we would know. Because um, they would be part of their advertising campaigns. Right. Um, if the military, why would the military want a blimp? I mean, they're they're silent, but they're so slow. That makes them an easy and big. That makes them an easy target. Why would you want to put a blimp there's over actually, a battlefield? There's actually um, proposals to build cargo carrying blimps. Sure, sure. But it's a different kind of, it's not a yeah. combat vehicle. Certainly, and certainly not. At that time, the, the, that time period. Yeah. Yeah. Also, why wouldn't they admit, oh, yeah, it was a blimp. It right. was a military blimp for whatever purposes. There's nothing classified about blimp technology. Now, <laughs> right. m- maybe they have a way to make blimps radar, you know, resistant. So some like stealth blimps. <laughs> but if they're doing a, a stealth blimp, you don't fly it over a major metropolitan area. Like with lights this, on it. With, <laughs> with lights on it. Yeah. Um, and you also don't fly your expensive new hardware right through aircraft landing space. Right. In, at an air, at a major airport that has hundreds of, you know, 
flights going in every day. Um, also, it's been argued that a blimp would collapse if it was as big as what's being reported, like a mile wide. Right. Um, so it doesn't really fit that. And as we mentioned, it would violate airspace laws in a crazy way. Okay. So that's the uh, the accidental misidentification claims. Uh, what about the this claim that maybe it was um, the military uh, testing a top secret uh, aircraft? Well, it could be. It could explain part of the data um, because we do have stealth technology that's radar resistant. Um, and so that would explain why the Sky Harbor guys didn't see it on radar. Um, this would be a very unique craft, though, um, in that it was slow and silent. Mm -hmm. um, now, silent is a property that you could want military vehicles to have. Uh, along with radar resistance. So it just adds a new layer of stealth if they're quiet. But um, why do you want slow? You know, right. I, it, it's kind of part of the problem we covered with the blimp. It <laughs> Slow does not make for a good combat vehicle. <laughs> right. And, and if you're, do you really need like a stealth cargo carrier for air supply, you know, supplies right. in the air? That's a little weird. And then why do you test it over a city? It's a major airspace hazard. And you're announcing publicly the thing you've got this. Right. Which is contrary to the purposes of a of a top secret testing program. So let me throw something out there that that just something to consider, which is, is that in the past, uh, people have theorized that the military is developing some sort of anti-gravity mm -hmm. um, vehicle. That would be cool. Yes, it would be. Um and if something like that, say maybe the pilots were testing it, say in Nevada, and mm -hmm. something happened to the pilots and the and the craft just drifted away, we've seen mm -hmm. that happen with aircraft that kind of in uncontrolled long term flight. Uh, the the golfer yeah. Payne Stewart uh, tragically died when his plane that happened um, several years ago. But so, and it just dr drifted. This anti grav top secret thing uh, again. Not not. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just throwing it out there as a. Yeah, what if? It's it's a long shot. Yep. Um there's I mean I can't exclude that from happening. Yep. Um but we don't have good positive evidence for it. Especially that um, big. Yeah, especially something that big. Um although there are other sites of, you know, reportedly massive aircraft that mm -hmm. the government is a possible explanation for. So I would put some really exotic piece of stealth technology. I mean, you have to posit two things in this case. One you have to posit that the government has some really exotic piece of technology that does this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you have to posit that something went really wrong right. to allow it to get over a major metropolitan area when it's supposed to be secret and classified. Okay. So um, we'll, we'll put it's a not impossible, yeah. but it's 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 not it's not necessarily it's it's not intrinsically probable. OK, that's that's a good way of putting it. So. So that leaves us with the uh, the other claim, which is that this was a prank by students from uh, perhaps Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Yeah, and that would explain part of the data, too. If it was a prank, it would explain why they did it over a city, because they wanted to prank people. Right. Um, it would also explain why they didn't admit it later, because it was a mi major violation of <laughs> federal law. Right. And or at least federal aviation policies. And you could get in very serious trouble, including at, at just a minimum having your pilot's license revoked. Um, but I think jail time is likely in such a situation as well. So it does explain part of the data. What it doesn't explain is the silence 
or the slow moving or the lack of radar. Because even if you're in a plane and you turn off your transponder, um, you you're going to show up on radar. Right. And you're not going to be able to fly at preternaturally slow speeds or silently. And Embry Riddle's um, the student uh, planes, I think, are generally propeller based. Uh, and so propeller based planes make quite a lot of noise at low yeah. altitude. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there is kind of a legend on campus that that's what happened. But mm. then that could be just a legend. Right. Right. OK, so. So those are the so those are the, the the most of the claims. Is there an, a natural explanation that could be offered? Well, the best chance of providing one is going to be to fragment this into two events and try to explain them independently of each other. Um, some will claim that the first event was airplanes, uh, the eight p.m. event, and. Um, it's even been proposed that they may have been Maryland National Guard jets that were heading to the Goldwater Range to drop the flares, which then became the second event. Okay. Um, but still, you know, that doesn't explain the, you know, so these weren't like stealth Maryland National Guard jets. <laughs> right. Why aren't they on radar? And right. why are they doing this over the city? Why are they going so slow? Um when it looked when we come to the second event though the 10 p.m. event it does look like that's probably flares um bruce Maccabee is an optical physicist so he really knows his optics and he's a ufologist so he's not a debunker okay. um and he has done an analysis of the video that people took of the 10 p.m. event and he wrote a paper um which we'll have in the show notes he wrote a paper for nicap which is a major UFO organization, um, in which he said that uh, the second event, and he really stressed that this only applies to the second event on March 13th, it was flares over the Goldwater Range. That's what people were seeing at 10 p.m. And the observations for that time frame are consistent with it being flares. And when you line up the videos, that's what you get. Um, He also says the same thing is the explanation for the January 14th, 1998 event when the lights reappeared. Um, However, he stresses this and and the Air Force also confirms the flare business, although some will say, well, they just launched him as a cover up of the 8 p.m. event. Mm -hmm. Um, And Maccabee says this only applies to the 10 p.m. event. It does not apply to the 8 p.m. event. He doesn't claim to anything about what that was. Okay. So having gone through all this, Jimmy, what what is your bottom line? What do you think uh, is going on here with the Phoenix Lights incident? Well, I think it's 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 a it's a unique event. It's the largest mass sighting of the longest duration with the best photographic and video evidence that we have to study. I think the second event was probably military flares at the Barry Goldwater range. Uh, but the first event is still a mystery. And it's it's quite possibly natural it, um, or non paranormal. I mean, it could be could be a prank, maybe could be a top secret piece of technology, maybe could be ETs. I don't know. Mm, OK, so uh, what for, for the resources can we give to people to let them know uh, so that they want to go into more on this? Yeah. So um, I'll have uh, in the show notes a link to Wikipedia's article on the Phoenix Lights. Also, I'll have a link to a documentary called The Phoenix Lights, and this documentary 
is on Amazon. It's part of Amazon Prime right now, so you can watch it for free. It's made by a woman who is an eyewitness. It's based on a book she did. Um, but it interviews a lot of people who saw the Phoenix Lights. Um, you know, it, it's it's definitely pro-Phoenix Lights. It also is, it favors the ET hypothesis and thinks aliens are here because they really, really like us. Um, <laughs> so, and we should like them back. Sure. So, um, you know, it it's definitely got a viewpoint it's coming from. I'll also have a link to uh, Dr. Bruce Maccabee's analysis of the second event and uh, also a link to John McCain's letter dealing with this. Excellent. Those will be those are all good resources. So the, that's the uh, Phoenix Lights uh, UFO uh, incident. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to some mysterious feedback. Um, uh, we've got a lot of great feedback on our Dyatlov Pass episode. Uh, people yeah, love lot. that one. <laughs> that was really good. Uh, uh, Ryan, uh, using our uh, our new way of communicating with us through the Twitter hashtag of mysterious feedback uh, at our Twitter account at mys underscore world. Uh, he says, I have a question about Dyatlov Pass. Would a Yeti possess the intelligence to cover their tracks if it considered the hiking party a threat? It seems odd they would flee underdressed. Thanks for the episode. It was extremely fascinating. Well, it's going to depend on how smart Yeti are. Um, <laughs> if they've managed to evade scientific detection and capture for all this time, that they could be smart enough to cover their tracks. There are, um, you know, animals that display high levels of cunning in in hunting and evading capture. And so I, I can't rule it out, but um, but it's hard. It's a little hard. I mean, it it it's still a long shot to my mind. Yeah. You know, we we just didn't find I mean, we do know on other occasions Yetis leave prints unless all those footprints are faked or misidentified. I mean, we have things that are purported to be Yeti footprints, so they obviously don't do it all the time. And if you're a Yeti sneaking up on people in a tent, um, do you really in the dark in a snowstorm? Is that the time you're going to be covering your footprints? Right. I would think they would do that more if they were hunting people or evading being or evading hunters. Right. OK. So and then Chris B127 on YouTube, leaving a comment on our YouTube video, says uh, we studied this while I attended the Na FBI National Academy. I hadn't heard about it before then, uh, which was in 2014, and it was fascinating. So glad you're doing this episode. Thank you so much, uh, Chris. Uh, it, we really enjoyed doing the episode, and it's cool to know that they're talking about this at the FBI National Academy. Yeah. And then uh, Heather Jaraz, I uh, hope, hope I said that right, Heather, on YouTube says, uh, here's my theory. All the far-fetched theories are fun to think about, but I think there could have been terribly high wind gusts. This was enough to cause an acute crisis. They thought the tent would blow right off the mountain. Actually, at that point, they were too panicked to think straight. They all went running for cover, and the drifting snow blowing everywhere lowered the visibility so much they couldn't find their way back until it was too late. But what was the condition of the tent when they found it? Wouldn't there have been evidence of high winds? So in terms of the tent when they found it, it had collapsed. Um, and, and uh, you know, there was snow on it because snow had fallen. And so it didn't, it, it wasn't fully set up when they found it. Um, I... I acknowledge that they could have, once they got out of it, um, they the visibility conditions could have been very poor, and so they had trouble finding their way back, maybe. Um, it wasn't snowing so bad, though, 
that all of their, I mean, it was, visibility conditions were bad because it was dark. Mm. Um, but it wasn't snowing so bad, though, that all of their tracks filled up because we found their tracks. Right. And if there had been heavy snowfall, those tracks would not be there. Right. Um, so that needs to be taken into account. And if um, with, you know, while wind could have been howling, it's not like they were camped on a cliff and thought they would have been blown off the mountain. They might have think, thought the tent's going to blow down on us. But um, but they wouldn't have thought we're just going to be blown off of a cliff or something like that because they were camping like a mile above the tree line at an on an on an angled surface, but not at a steep angle and not on a cliff. Right. I mean, these as we said in the episode, these are experienced Siberian winter hikers. Uh, yeah. That who knew they were they were they were doing this to pass their highest level certification. Right. And uh, and that doesn't necessarily explain why they would cut their way out of the back of the tent. Right. Uh, so unless it collapsed even, on them, even suppose, well, but. even if it collapsed on them, if I'm in a tent and it collapses on me, am I? This is the first thing I'm going to do. Going to cut my way out into this freezing condition with no shoes on, or am I going to say, "Hey, everybody, let's all nine of us stand up and <laughs> hold up the tent and re-erect the the poles?" <laughs> right. Right. Because this is your your shelter, uh, and then when you cut it open, instead of running away, are you going to run away or are you going to put on? Look for your your pants and your boots <laughs> before yeah, running away. And, yeah, and get it set up again and go back in and start stitching up that hole that you foolishly made for no reason. <laughs> right, right. That's a good point. Uh, okay, but thank you, Heather. The the good good thought, uh, good theory on that. Uh, uh, yeah, good thinking it through. S Palm on YouTube says, "Fascinating, Jimmy. Your build up and excellent storytelling skills make these episodes so interesting and thirsty for more." Thank you very much, S. Palm. I, uh, you know, I, as I often point out, humans are wired for stories, and I, I, I devote conscious thought ahead of time to how can I tell this in a narrative manner so that one thing builds on another. Uh, David Arcudi on YouTube says, first thought, Jimmy's at Russian is excellent. Ah, спасибо, товарищ. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Sarah on Facebook says, I listened to this yesterday, and today woke up to minus 26 degrees. Fahrenheit without wind chill, it would take a lot to get me outside in weather like that without a coat and barefoot. Yeah, indeed. So, um, <laughs> so it just underscores something dramatic must have happened to force them out that quickly, all of them all at once in bare feet and uh, and uh, cutting their way out the back. Mm. And then, uh, so that's our feedback. Uh, let's move on to mysterious headlines, Jimmy. What mysterious headlines do you have for us this week? So I have a couple of things. Um, there's a, a video uh, and an article accompanying it um, about an Italian UFO groups group getting hoaxed by an online video. Um, we know, you know, back in the day, the saying was pictures don't lie, but now they do. And so um, you can't trust everything you see on YouTube. And there are a lot of sketchy UFO videos out there. And this is one of them. Um, there is an Italian group that uh, came across a video. It shows these mountains. I assume it's the Alps, but these mountains. And um, there's what looks like a triangle. It's kind of looks like the Greek letter Delta, but it's a triangle that appears to be made out of cloud and is flying around above this mountain. And... Um, and then it fly, and then it zooms off at unbelievable speed. And they looked at this video and they analyzed it and they said, this looks credible. 
Well, then another video emerges, and it turns out it's an edited version of another video advertising an an upcoming mountaineering <laughs> event called the Val, uh, the Valmalenko Ultra Distance Trail, oh. or VUT. And in the uh, in the other video, you have these letters made out of cloud. The triangle is a is a stylized version of a V, and it's followed by a UT. And so you have this triangle or VUT logo right. flying around above the mountain <laughs> as as a and it's all just computer generated. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, we, so, we have to be ever more. Uh, even though we have more and more cameras and video uh, out there, we have to be ever more careful because technology has got to the point where, you know, it, it's hard to tell what's real and what isn't. Yeah. And then uh, another headline. One more. Uh, so Tom uh, McDonald on Facebook sends us a, a report uh, that recently made the news about Russia is reopening the investigation into Dyatlov Pass. Mm. And so we'll have a link to that. You want to check that out. Um, from what I saw, at least in one of the stories I saw, the officials were like out the gate saying, we're not expecting to find anything paranormal here. They were kind of dismissive of that. But um, but they are at least looking into it again and hoping to find some more definitive results. Excellent. Well, uh, hopefully a mystery that could be solved. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to take credit for the Russians listening to our podcast yeah. and deciding to. <laughs> to reopen totally, it, <laughs> we, we we totally are responsible. Yes, yeah. that, that would be nice to think. So uh, we'd like to take a moment, as we always do, to thank our pa patrons who make this show possible. Uh, and today we want to thank by name a couple of them, uh, Nate F., Mardell B., Felix L., Claudia S., and James K. And it's through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give that it makes it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows we do at sqpn.com. I encourage you to go check out our, our other shows, by the way. If you enjoy this show, you would probably enjoy hearing Jimmy on Secrets of Doctor Who, Secrets of Star Trek, and some of the other shows we've been doing. Uh, and you can join the, our patrons at uh, sqpn.com slash give. So, so that's it from us. Uh, what do you think of the Phoenix Lights UFO incident? Did you see this happen? We'd love to hear from folks who saw it uh, firsthand. Um, in, or if you've got a theory, we'd love to hear your theory. Uh, let us know by going to sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Leave us some feedback there. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. And remember to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter at our regular at SQPN Twitter account or the at MYS underscore world uh, SQPN uh, account, Twitter account. Be sure to check out the new Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com, uh, where we have links to all of the books and videos and all the, of the resources that you can purchase uh, that Jimmy mentions in the show. Um, just to, to let you know, if you buy anything through the store, that helps support the show. So we greatly appreciate you doing that. Um, if you want to look for anything uh, that we've talked about, there's so many great books and videos and things there uh, that you want to check out. You can find the links to our the resources that Jimmy mentioned and to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening 
to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>